My name is Angus Winchester. I'm from uh, Lancaster University, and I'm one of the uh, members of the Memorial Documents Register Advisory Panel. It's a great pleasure to introduce our first panel session. The purpose of this session really is to provide some context to the MDR, and I think it should follow on very well from Chris's introduction to Memorial Records, because we're going to have three case studies from three leading scholars in three different disciplines, all of whom have used manorial records in pioneering ways. And the three disciplines are historical demography, the study of past populations, landscape archaeology, the evolution of landscape and settlement, and economic history, the, the minutiae of the economic lives of, of our forebears. The focus is on the medieval period in, in the uh, in, in one session, we're moving into what might almost be termed the, uh, the Tudor period. Uh, so without further ado, I'll uh, introduce our first speaker. And it's a great pleasure to introduce Richard Smith, who is Emeritus Professor of Historical Geography at Cambridge and one of the leading historical demographers uh, in the country. His work has demonstrated the potential of manorial records to recover details of the lives of ordinary people in the Middle Ages, particularly looking at uh, peasant inheritance practices and also looking at marriage patterns and practices, intimate aspects of life of the sort of thing that, uh, that Chris was talking about. And Richard's talk this morning is on reconstructing peasant marriage behaviour using manorial records of the 13th and 14th centuries. Richard. Well, from the rather sort of wide-ranging sublime to the rather narrow ridiculous that I think you're going to experience when you compare what Chris was saying with what I'm saying. I'm going to look at a fairly narrow issue, but those of you who have been following the debates in um, late medieval history about the arrival of some kind of highly distinctive marriage pattern in the, in the late 14th, 15th century, which has enabled Western Europe somehow to advance ahead of everywhere else in the globe, will realize why this has become quite an interesting issue from a, a rather narrower perspective. And I'm going to begin from an early modern vantage point because a key feature of marriage behaviour as firmly documented using the parochial recording of Anglican marriages after 1537, when our parish registers really get going, is the role it played in enabling what Malthus said in the late 18th century was the preventive check. So central to Malthus's ideas about how population control was determined before we had the onset of uh, more modern forms of family limitation from the later 19th century. So that's for marriage constraint or restraint to be achieved when living standards dropped and to be relaxed or abandoned somewhat when conditions ameliorated with very significant implications for the fertility rate. And also in certain circumstances, if the death rate went up, it would promote more marriages because there were more inheritances of, of land or remarriages of widows who had been predeceased, let's say, by a spouse. That kind of arrangement then would be expected to establish some kind of link between the death rate and the birth rate, the birth rate going up to compensate when the, um, the death rate rose. Well, in the absence of marriage registers, the kind that English parishes had in abundance, really, from the 16th century. Some students of local population conditions between circa 1250 and, I'd say, about 1400, have used the merchant fines 
paid to manorial lords when females, usually females, there are a few cases where males paid it, but they're very, very rare, within villain families, married. They've used that to measure the marital propensities of females. And such fines were predominantly, although not um, exclusively, recorded in manorial court rules. In some cases, they appear in the manorial accounts as a source of seigneurial income, and occasionally they get abstracted into registers and cartleries, most likely as an attempt by the Lord to establish the legal status of those who paid them. Now, a research student in Chris's old department at Birmingham, Zirazi, pioneered use of these fines, considering their variability over time as they were recorded in the court rolls of Hales Owen in Worcestershire. He noted that merchants rose in frequency during periods associated with enhanced mortality, reflecting the fact that many may have been remarrying or entering marriages, enabled by inheritances of land. Although he also noted that this positive relationship between marriage and mortality was not evident during and immediately after the Great Famine, shall we say from 1315 to the early 1320s, when economic conditions appeared to thwart marriage altogether. And he noted that the rising number of marriages in the 1330s and 1340s, he thought, implied a demographic buoyancy before the Black Death. And he identifies, as some scholars have in a number of case studies, a great surge in marriage fines in 1349-1350, as couples remarried after the mortality had wreaked such havoc during 1349. The problem, though, as we move through the 14th century, is that the marriage fine becomes progressively and progressively more infrequent. Sometimes the marriage fines can become very high at this moment in time. They may be a reflection of lords trying to screw as much as they can out of those who um, are, are, in a sense, willing or interested in recording their marriages, but they become less useful for the kind of purposes to which historical demographers would, I think, prefer to use them. But one of the, and going back to this question of the manorial court telling us more than um, or less than we would ideally want to know, there's a great deal of evidence to show that the marriage fine was far more likely to be paid by the wealthier tenants, the wealthier sections of the community, uh, than the poorer. And that, in a sense, immediately produces a contrast with the um, registration of marriages in the Anglican church after 1537. In fact, I won't go into the intricacies of this, but Merchant was probably more akin to a kind of stamp duty used as a means of controlling inheritance, and hence a tax on peasant wealth. And to ascertain whether certain of the servile marriages, and we have to remember too, a point that Chris was making is that we're looking at marriage in a section of the population, the unfree, who also constitute a slight minority of the total. So we've got a large area of our, our population outside that sector for whom this kind of source won't really help us a great deal. And i just quickly demonstrate this point. If we were to look at marriage rates in early modern England, Tudor and Stuart period, we reckon there would be somewhere between 12 and 15 marriages for every thousand of the population. That's a sort of an early modern marriage rate. And that's a marriage rate you'd find in a population where 
the average age of female marriage in the low to middle 20s, marrying men in the middle to upper 20s. And probably around about one in 10 women never marrying at all. That's the sort of picture you have in the, I'd say, the late Tudor and Stuart era. And it seems to be indubitably associated with a kind of marriage regime which historical demographers have come to call the European or the Northwest European regime. Now, if we look at a sample of um, marriage rates, and these are marriage rates based upon the rate per thousand unfree, where that um, base figure can be computed. You can see that they rarely reach that sort of level. Uh, they're often in the range of five or six per thousand. When one, would, one might have expected them, if they've come anywhere close to the, um, um, the rate we find in the early modern period, to be twice or sometimes three times that level. So I think that a priori establishes the fact that the merchant paying, if you like, element in the female population are a minority of the total population and at best, let's say, a half of the unfree. I hope that statistical point is reasonably, reasonably clear. So we're looking at something which is selectively paid. The other point, and I've been remiss in not giving you some nice examples of court proceedings, you'll quickly find, if you're looking at the marriage fines, the merchant fines, they might vary between a mark, 13 shillings and fourpence, down to two or three pence. They're rarely, if ever, the same levy on each marriage. So you immediately have to ask, why is the Lord charging some pe peasants or peasant women, or their fathers, 13 shillings and fourpence to record a marriage as opposed to threepence? In other words, they were much, much more commonly paid by the... Um, the wealthier villains than smallholders or cottagers. And in fact, cottagers and smallholders very rarely appeared in the records of merchant payers. So their marital behaviour is especially difficult to, to chart. So care has to be exercised in assuming that merchant payments can be regarded as similar to entries in an early modern marriage register. But don't despair, there's a lot that you can still do with them. And I think to date, the most incisive study of merchant payments has actually been undertaken by two, I suppose medievalists, we regard them as sort of um, intruders from economics, from Dublin, who have used the variable number of an amount of the marriage fine to very good effect. These authors have studied the annual series of merchant payments on 65 manors located in the estates of the Bishopric of Winchester, exploiting that remarkable archive that I suppose in any sort of forum where manorial documentation is discussed, the Winchester pipe rolls come up um, in one form or another. Uh, they also use the evidence in the uh, pipe rolls on inheritance and the land market, suggesting that there were considerably fewer marriages than there were inheritances, reflecting perhaps the fact that those entering smaller properties were far li less likely to have been charged merchant. And it's a pattern confirmed in another study of a Winchester Manor that I undertook, published in a very obscure festschrift for the French medievalist Georges Duby many years ago. But it makes, I think, the same sort of point. These are three um, Winchester Manors, Ivinghoe, Atterbury and East Meon, um, in different counties. But again, showing that the proportion of, of, of merchant fines paid relative to the fathers of the bride's landholding status shows that you know, the half... The 
to one Vergate, the one Vergate are disproportionately found to be paying merchant compared with the smallholders. Now, this study of Winchester shows that in years when prices were particularly high, there was an inverse relationship with the number of merchant payers. So high prices seem to be associated with low frequency of merchant payers. However, in years when prices were particularly high, those making the larger merchant payments appear to have increased in frequency. So if you've got families where they're doing quite well out of the high price of grain, they're much, much more likely to find their daughters marrying. Um, whereas on the other side of the social spectrum, they're far less likely to be doing so. This seems to me to be one of the most powerful um, vindications of the presence of the preventive check in the English peasantry in the later 13th and the first half of the 14th century. Pretty responsive marital regime within the unfree villain population. And in fact, Zvirazi found exactly the same in Hailzone, that um, there was a much, much higher frequency of marriages recorded in the Hailzone court rolls during periods of high prices from the wealthier tenants within the Hailzone population. So I think this considerable scope for anyone who's willing to collect large numbers of merchant payments from large numbers of manorial court roll series that we can now find more readily than we would have done because of what's happened with the register, to see whether this pattern has a broader presence in the period before the Black Death. Unfortunately, the changing character of landlord-tenant relations as captured in these records means that these issues are unlikely to be studied with so much assurance beyond around about 1370 or 1380, leaving a substantial chronological gap before we get into the parish register era after 1537. But relatively recently, the American-based medievalist Judith Bennett has focused on um, the lives of single and poor women in England, who she sees, and using manorial um, court records in particular, who she sees demonstrating behaviour in the um, difficult conditions in the country, shall we say, before the Black Death. And again, she sees it as uh, evidence that casts a great deal of light on the restricted marital opportunities of poor women. She will, I hope, soon publish two papers that she has based on manorial evidence relating to the prior of Spalding in the manor of Weston in South Lincolnshire. Uh, there, there survives a list dated to 1268-69 of the offspring of the serfs of the prior of Spalding. Controversially, this listing has been used by various researchers, and I've used it myself and been quite severely criticised for doing so, so I'm quite pleased to see it now being properly used by Judith Bennett. But I think Bennett makes a major contribution to our understanding of the list. And what she's been able to do, and I think this gives you some indication of the richness of opportunities with certain types of manorial documentation, she's done some nominative linkage of those listed and their parents with two other manorial or manorially derived source categories. One step involves linking with those females for whom there are entries relating to their marriages, their, their merchants, and their fornications, their Leowites, in a Spalding register produced in the 15th century by drawing material, 
by a contemporary in the 15th century from extant manorial court rolls of the 13th century. And the other linkages are achieved with those appearing as tenants of the prior of Spalding on a manorial survey of 1275, just about six years later than the other listing. And what Bennett does is he attempts to establish the approximate age structure of the 238 linked offspring of those serfs of 1268-69. And she finds that at that particular moment in time, about 35% of the girls appear not to be married. And of those who are listed as married, and one of the great things about this survey is they tell you where they are, where they're resident at that particular moment in time, 69% of the girls who had married had done so and either in or had moved to communities around the manor of Weston. It's a high level of what we would call in the demographic profession marital exogamy, geographical marital exogamy. And on that listing, very interesting, seven women were identified as vacabundas, living either in unknown or non-specified locations such as extramare, whatever that means in the South Lincolnshire sort of context. <laughs> in other words, at some considerable distance from Weston. Now, Judith Bennett's at pains, I think, to stress the difficulties of marriage or possibly reluctance to enter into it, particularly on the part of females um, at this moment in the late 13th century. In that same sample of manners that I worked on from the uh, estates of the Bishop of Winchester, I found that 50% of the marriages in those uh, four places uh, between 1297 and 1362 were registered pro se maritare extra, to marry outside. And um, looking at um, three manors in Cambridgeshire of, the, um, of Crowland Abbey in the um, early 14th century, I found a very, very similar high level of marital exogamy amongst the serf girls who had left or were identified as marrying extra homagium. Now, of course, that could need not necessarily be outside the community, as I'm sure Chris would tell you, but it's, it's or ubicumque voluerit. That's a very interesting, I think, category. They outnumbered, by some considerable margin, those girls who married infra homagium, usually by about two to one between that period. And the interesting thing, too, is that on the Winchester estates and on the Crowland estates, the girls who married inside the manor were much more likely to have their fines paid by their father. The girls marrying outside the manor were much more likely to be paying themselves, or at least no evidence of, um, of dad's presence in the, um, in the payment. Now, Bennett's discussion of these, of those identified as vacabundas on the Western listing, is especially enlightening. Most of the males who are reported as vacabundus, vagabonds, were from families practicing impartable inheritance or primogeniture. And such individuals were decidedly absent from families in which the land was held in sockage, where partible inheritance or multigeniture was the means by which property devolved. There were two different inheritance arrangements operative in this particular South Lincolnshire manor at the date. And of even greater interest, perhaps, is Bennett's finding that most of the female vagabonds came from sockage families in which more than one son would have inherited. So there's considerable pressure, if you like, on the, um, on the family estate to preference or privilege the, the lads at the expense of their, of their sisters. They were much more likely then to move out and to become, in a sense, apart from the manorial regime that was operative there. What is very interesting, though, this is um, a pattern that 
that pioneer who we, I think, sometimes now forget, George Homans, who wrote a, a tremendously, I think, important book in the um, pre-war period. He said exactly the same thing about um, the propensity of, of different systems of inheritance to lead to greater, greater degrees of family coherence, depending on uh, whether one son inherited or whether all sons were, um, in a sense, the beneficiaries. But what Bennett does, I think, is really to show how this system impacted on women, who have been rather neglected, I think, in that, um, in that area. Now, I don't have time, as I would like to, um, to say more about how the manorial record could be used, if at all, uh, to determine the ages at which girls married. That's the most problematic of all, because technically, in an English parish register, you will frequently have a baptismal entry, which you could then link with a subsequent marriage at some other uh, point in time. The manorial court doesn't enable us to um, identify a birth date to which the, um, the marriage or the merchant payment can then be related. Uh, Zirazi attempted estimates of this kind in his pioneering work on Hales Owen. Herbert Hallam did some more work on the South Lincolnshire, but um, I, I don't want to um, complicate matters by saying that their methods are, are highly highly contentious and debatable. So we can't really establish whether this was an early or a late marrying regime. But what we can, I think, now say is that we've got a lot of evidence to suggest that the propensity of, of serf uh, females to marry was quite variable, and especially variable from the record as it exists between, shall we say, the middle of the 13th century uh, to, let's say, the years immediately before or after the Black Death in the 14th century. And I'll just come back to... Um, why the manorial evidence is still incredibly important and under-researched, I think, by those who are writing about um, these sorts of issues, often from, from disciplines that are some way detached from manorial documentation and making assumptions that um, suggest that they would, I think, do well to, um, to master these rather problematic sources and to learn a bit of courthand and... Um, the abbreviations that you need to master to make sense of them. And I'll just end by saying, well, while there's evidence that has emerged from these studies that suggests a female marital regime based on the incidence of and migration to marry that displays more than partial European traits from at least the late 13th century, the overall data set is still remarkably thin. And should certainly caution, I think, those historians who've recently developed or found um, persuasive an argument about the emergence of a late and low-intensity marriage regime among the female populations of Northwest Europe, including England, in the labour-deficient conditions that prevail after the Black Death. There's this belief that it's, it's, it, it, it's then when you, you get a marriage regime which seems to be responsive to economic conditions. They're keen to see the late medieval period. Uh, none of the principal protagonists in this debate, I might add, are medievalists. They're keen to see the late medieval period as one in which low and late intensity female marriage re regime originated, so as to promote, as I said at the beginning of my talk, favourable economic change. There's surely enough evidence to see doubt in the chronological ordering of this argument in the English case, since it could be argued that the salient elements of this preventive check that Malthus was so keen to, uh, in a sense, to promote were characteristic of marital behaviour that can be charted in the period of sharply worsening economic conditions before 1349. 
And I think it behoves those who engaged in this debate to work harder in the sources, especially in the relatively abundant manorial sources before 1400, to improve the robustness of the, of the data relating to the historical demography of medieval marriage before constructing such grandiose edifices on thinly built and shaky foundations. Thank you. So I'll move straight on now to our second speaker and to introduce Mark Gardner, who is Reader in Heritage at the University of Lincoln. Mark is a landscape archaeologist who studied a huge range of uh, aspects of medieval landscapes widely from uh, the southeast of England across to the far north Atlantic, I think it's fair to say, uh, and today he's coming back to, to, to look at the southeast. As uh, a landscape archaeologist, of course, he is able to do the very interesting thing of linking documentary evidence to archaeological and landscape evidence, so linking the, the manorial material here to the ground. So it's a great pleasure to introduce Mark, who's going to speak on a landscape of parchment and paper, manorial documents and archaeology on Romney Marsh. Well, there are many areas, there are many particular areas which I could have chosen to talk about today, but as Angus has already indicated, I've picked out the landscape because, um, as I'll explain, I'm interested particularly in looking at today the points at which archaeology and the historical record, the administrative record, come together. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, Romney Marsh, um, as Angus has already uh, indicated. And I'm going back to work that I did um, 20 years ago, because for the last 20 years um, I've been living in Ireland and I've been worried, worrying about particularly Irish problems, which are less relevant today. Um, but last year I moved back to work in England. And I moved back to work from a um, university archaeology department to a history department. And one of the issues that I had to confront in doing so was in teaching students who were primarily historians and who thought like historians um, and thought in a different way to the, the way that archaeologists thought. And I hadn't realised this. I had thought that they would think in, in a similar way, and I was confronted by the fact that they didn't. And so that made me think, what are the differences? And one of the things that's sort of underlying a theme that's running through what I have to say today is what are the differences, and what are the points at which we can really bring together uh, documents, and uh, the material remains the archaeology. Now, one of the differences, one of the differences is that archaeologists are a little bit, uh, play a little bit fast and loose with chronology, um, we're often happy if we can pin down an event to, uh, to half a century. Historians can do rather better than that, and they, uh, they usually know the year, and, um, and usually, uh, and often, uh, the very day when something happened. Then there's agency, who's doing the things. Archaeologists very rarely know who's doing it. They know what, what, what's done, but they very rarely know who's doing it. Historians know a great deal more about individuals. Now, the implications... The implications of these differences are actually extremely profound. And archaeologists, as a consequence, sort of move from dealing with the particularities to great sweeping uh, statements about social and economic change without a great deal of chronological precision. Historians extrapolate very carefully, as we have seen from their documents, to understand more generally what is going on in society. 
Now, given these contrasts, is there a common ground which there is between the two disciplines? Or are we doomed to be like um, a scientist using a microscope and one using a telescope? They may, may both be looking at things, but are they even able to talk about a common subject? Well, it seems to me that there are two particular areas, two particular areas where the subjects converge. The first is talking about buildings, and accounts in particular refer to specific events in the construction of a building. I'm not going to talk about that today, although buildings fascinate me. What I am going to talk about is the second one, which is about landscapes. And I want to talk about how documents can say things about landscapes and how archaeologists can say things about landscapes and how we might be able to put the two together. And I have to pick out, and I have, or I have picked out, this particular area, partly because, as we'll see, this is archaeology on a huge scale. And that allows us to look more closely um, at the way uh, that the two records might interact. Now, land, of course, was at the heart of manorial documents. Manorial accounts, medieval manorial accounts, record the works done on buildings. I've mentioned buildings already. The manorial mill. It refers to basic mundane tasks like hedging and ditching, or ploughing, as we've already seen, and uh, harvesting, as Chris Dyer has already indicated. Court rolls refer to uh, the change of tenants, they, whether through death or through purchase of land, they record the infractions through straying animals, um, the dilapidation of buildings sometimes, amongst other matters. And archaeology can at least address, sometimes rather obliquely, some of these subjects. But how often can we point to a particular building which archaeologists have excavated and say, this was occupied by a certain person at a certain time? Very rarely can we bring uh, those two uh, sources together. And I think one of the areas, one of the areas in which we can do so are manorial rentals. Manorial rentals which are recording the duties and particularly the payments made by individuals for their property, or property which they rented from the Lord. And I'm interested today in some particular sorts of uh, manorial rentals, manorial surveys, which were particularly detailed. These ones which record not just who the tenant is who's paying the rent and the rent that they're paying, but records exactly where the land is. And they do so by describing the land and telling us what's on surrounding it, what the abuttals are, the things which adjoin it. And um, I spent some time ploughing my way through um, a series of, of surveys like this and trying to use these and look at what's uh, going on. And um, the area I worked in, uh, was working in, is this area of southeast England, Romney Marsh. And when I first started working in Romney Marsh, it's a bit like uh, you can see in the bottom left, this rather lovely uh, landscape, pastoral landscape, with these creeks, uh, marshland creeks running through it, uh, and sheep in the background. And it was transformed uh, during the period I was working on it to a sort of very much an arable landscape. But... This recent transformation is in many ways just part of a sequence of transformation which has been taking place in this area because back in the Middle Ages and particularly in the 15th century, which I'll be talking about, there was the reverse taking place. It was an arable landscape moving towards a pastoral, primarily a sheep uh, grazing uh, landscape. And this transformation 
was very significant in terms of what was going on in, in the area because it led to the depopulation, as we will see, of Romney Marsh and the engrossment, the putting together of small plots of land to make large areas uh, on which you could graze sheep. Depopulation because you need very few people to look after sheep, uh, many fewer than you do to plough the land. So let's just illustrate uh, this process. If we start off with the graph, um, the graph records uh, on the vertical axis the size of uh, holdings, um, so at the top uh, less than one acre and so on to at the bottom 32 acres and we're looking at three documents, a survey of uh, the manor of Denge in 1432 uh, one which is slightly anomalous uh, in 1477, it's the rents, or the Scots actually, the Scots, the amount of money being paid for tenants who are holding bits of land, and they're paying this to maintain the marshland. So it's not really a rental, nor is it indeed a manorial document. And, uh, and then one of 1538, which is another rental. So they're more or less the same area, they're not precisely the same area, they're not precisely the same documents, but they allow us to compare the two. And I think the thing that you can see is in 1432 that a lot of the land was being held in very small plots indeed. Not many people had more than 32 acres of land. By 1538, that was totally transformed. A lot of people had much more land. So this engrossment uh, over a century or so had certainly taken place. And the consequence of this was large-scale depopulation, as I've said, fewer people, and in archaeological terms, we can see this manifest from the desertion of churches. The top one, actually, I've erroneously um, labelled, it's not Hopal Saints, it's uh, Midley Church, a church that's uh, abandoned because there's simply too few people to attend, um, and one we excavated at uh, Broom Hill, that's the um, aisle of the church, uh, abandoned around 1500, and the sea uh, came lapping in in due course and, and filled up with silt the, 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 the uh, body of the church. But the church had already been abandoned and, uh, and it, it, it subsequently was robbed out. So these churches, as across Romney Marsh, um, are abandoned simply because there isn't the people to attend them and to maintain them. Well, let us uh, turn a bit to the archaeology and I'm going to refer to uh, I've already referred to one of these detailed surveys, the survey of 1432 for Denge. I want to refer to two others, one of uh, 1552 for the manor of Old Langport. And um, I went, uh, at, the at the time when I was looking at these, these were kept in Lyd Town Hall, and I remember a sort of frisson as I read the manor of Langport uh, survey of 1552, realising that it was describing uh, houses down the street in the very place where I was sitting, and due course indeed in the very building, or at least a building on the site that I was sitting. And uh, in, uh, we could read from that, this detailed survey in the abutters, you can actually reconstruct the pattern of the town, um, although you can't see because the shading has disappeared on this slide, uh, the built-up area was more or less the same in 1556, as uh, Lid was in 1897. That's slightly unusual because many places on the marsh were contracting. The towns seem to have hung on, however. Now, the, um, the other uh, area which I, or the second area which I, I looked at um, was Old Romney. And um, 
Old Romney is, was, was something of a problem when we were working on it because there's Old Romney and New Romney and people who work on uh, landscapes immediately say, well, look, is this the earlier town and did New Romney uh, replace it? And there was a question, was this the earlier town and was it replaced by the later rather flourishing port of New Romney? So we did two things. We went and actually looked at it in the field uh, and we uh, also looked at uh, the document, a, uh, a survey of uh, 1552. And um, I'll just give you a little bit about the background. The yellow band, which I've coloured in for you, this is a canal which was, um, was, was, was uh, cut to flush water through uh, the port at New Romney. Um, they were having problems with it silting up. Is that the fate of Old Romney too? And in particular, people had drawn attention to what I've indicated in, uh, in red, with the red blocks, um, the various churches, abandoned churches, St. Michael's, uh, what is it, St. I can't remember, read the other one, and St. Uh, and St. Clement's, um, a string of churches. So indicating uh, St. Lawrence uh, and uh, indicating um, a depopulation. We could uh, put, use the 1552 survey. We could construct, as I did, diagrammatically what that landscape was like in 1552, and we could pick out, place that on a map base, uh, work out where the glebe was, and also work out where the houses were. And the 1552 survey was particularly detailed. It told us not only where the houses were and who was living in them, but it also told us where the houses had been. Now, when the had been bit was, was not entirely clear, but perhaps 50 years later it said there had been a message, a house uh, there. And we can transpose that diagrammatic information onto the map and suggest that the blue uh, houses, the blue, blue plots are the houses as they were in 1552 and the ones in outline blue are the houses which had been there perhaps we don't know presumably at an earlier survey perhaps uh, 50, 50 or so years later so here's a sh here's a settlement it's quite clearly in trouble it's shrinking uh, it's disappearing part of this process of depopulation so that was the first thing we did. The second thing we did was to go and look and see if we could find these buildings. Now, this area had been ploughed flat, but what we did was we walked over the surface, as archaeologists do, the surface of fields, and we picked up the pottery. And the pottery is the rubbish which people have thrown out. And you get concentrations of pottery from their, 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 their middens, their dung heaps, uh, immediately round the houses. And we were able to pick up the pottery and look at its concentrations, these Circles indicate concentrations of pottery, and any circle is a concentration of pottery above average. And you can see there are particular concentrations there, uh, one in the uh, northeast, one in the southwest, um, suggesting probably uh, two houses there. And that's for the period 1000 to 1250. Pottery's, pottery's relatively datable, not precisely datable, but relatively datable. And uh, then for the succeeding 250 years, slightly different patterns. So houses uh, coming and going. So we can use the documents. We could put it together with the field evidence and we could begin to build up a picture of how uh, Old Romney had expanded and then uh, contracted, particularly its contraction. Now, the site I particularly want to talk about is this site at Lid Quarry. <coughs> It's to the southwest of Lyd, 
And uh, my colleagues, very largely, I didn't spend a lot of time there. I used to visit and see how the work was getting on and found a lot of very unhappy archaeologists, generally speaking, working in this sea of mud. And they were working there often over the winter, so you can imagine how grim it was. During the 1990s, the quarry decided that they, or the, the, the company decided that they were going to strip off the topsoil, and underneath uh, that uh, brown soil that you can see there are gravel deposits. And we were able to work on a scale where you can very rarely operate. So the whole site, when it was completed, was 1.1 kilometres across, huge area, by 500 metres wide. And what we were able to do, and you can see that in the far slide, was to peel back this skim of topsoil and those lines that you can see there, and you've got some sense of scale by looking at the, the vehicles there, those lines are ditches which have been dug into the ground uh, and subsequently infilled. And uh, by rather clever work uh, by my former colleagues, they were able to make sense um, of this and to plot and work out a sequence of events. And the basic sequence is this, that around 1200, this embankment was built. It's built in, across the marshland to keep the sea out, which was at this point on that side, and to enclose an area from the sea. And initially, the, uh, they used the original creeks, the naturally occurring creeks in the marshland, to drain the land, and then started um, cutting ditches to create fields to drain the land, and as you'll see, uh, we've got a series of ditched trackways which were made through the countryside uh, and uh, through the fields. And then they started settling it around, around, 12, around about 1200, certainly the early 13th century. Farmsteads started appearing in this former area of marshland. Now, by looking at the pottery in those ditches, we can build up a picture of the, the expansion and contraction of, of the field boundaries of those ditches. So here we are in the, uh, in the 13th century, lots of ditches, whole thing cut up into tiny, small, little fields, um, which is not uh, the, 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 the picture that we were later used to. And lots of uh, settlement sites, lots of people living there, lots of farmsteads there. We go on into the 14th and 15th century, and the change you'll notice is that those field boundaries, a lot of those field boundaries are being infilled, the fields are being thrown together, and fewer settlement sites. And if we go on to the next stage, you'll see there are relatively few field boundaries. That process of engrossment, which I've talked about, of throwing land together, is very graphically apparent in the archaeology as well. So that is the archaeology, and I'll talk a little bit about it in a minute, but I want to talk a little bit about the uh, documents, because the great thing we had was this 1552 survey, and the challenge was to take that and to try and tie it down very closely to the things that we had been excavating. Can we actually say, this is this field, that is that field? So... Here I've mentioned the embankment, there we are, and there we are. It's referred to as Gore's Wall. We knew where we were. And in 1552, we had uh, a trackway, which we could identify archaeologically, going up parallel with Gore's Wall, and a second one, which we could also see going um, slightly further to the south, winding their way through the fields, and there they are, that's the trackway as we excavated it. So that's the two ditches um, with the trackway going in between. It's situated on the gravel 
um, because that's a nice dry uh, area to go on. And our problem then was to see if we could identify what was going on, because in 1552 there were four buildings. There was uh, Smith's Barn there, there was the house of Thomas Harlackenden, there was Thomas Agassiz's house, and there was Alan Epes' house. Now, Smith's Barn was outside the area we were excavating, so we couldn't uh, say anything about that. Thomas Harlackenden's house was within the area we were excavating, so that was uh, something we were looking for. Um, and uh, Thomas Agassiz's house is uh, a surviving farm called uh, Pigwell Farm, so we, we, we knew roughly where uh, that was. So there we are, you can see on this uh, map of uh, 1870, there's Pigwell Farm. And there is a, a rather strange thing which the Ordnance Survey had recorded. It wasn't a building. They recorded the site of something called Burnt House. And so we wondered, was that, uh, was that Thomas Harlackenden's house? And excavation didn't actually take place on the site of... Have I got a slide of it? No, I haven't. A slide of Thomas Harlackenden's house. It took place adjacent to it, and they, the, uh, the excavators found uh, a well... They found lots of uh, late 17th and early 18th century pottery, uh, which was dominated by clay pipes and pottery tankards, which they suggested were implied that the, this was rubbish that had been cleared out. They suggested that this was material from an inn or tavern uh, which had been situated there. And uh, this, we are fairly certain, was actually a building which occupied that site of uh, Thomas Harlackenden's uh, house. So we really could tie the bits together. Now this was a rather nice example where we can really put and closely tie in together the archaeology and the uh, documentary, the manorial uh, records. The two really do speak to one another and the two inform each other directly about the same thing. Not merely about the context but about the same things. But I sometimes wonder whether historians and archaeologists are not talking to each other, they're talking past each other. And the fundamental reason for this, as I've argued, is one of scale and also of chronological resolution. Archaeologists simply cannot tie things down as tightly as historians can. Scale because archaeologists are working on particular sites. Lid quarry is exceptional in working in this huge area, but usually we're working on specific sites. We're working about on particular buildings. We're working on the detail of particular buildings, on their post holes, on the ditches. This is one from uh, Lid quarry, or reconstruction of one. We're working on that sort of detail. Very rarely can documents tell us anything about particular buildings in that way. They can sometimes tell us about other buildings, but very rarely do they tell us about those buildings uh, that we are excavating. And then there is another problem. Excavation is extraordinarily time-consuming. The excavations that you saw took lots and lots of people over um, many, many months to record and many more months to interpret. As a former colleague of mine, Bruce Campbell, used to say, archaeological evidence is very hard won. How different from reading manorial documents where we can sit down and we can read and transcribe and then begin to make sense of in a matter of hours or days. Really quite large areas of landscape. So, what, I wanted, what I've tried to argue today is not that historical records replace archaeology or even more improbably 
that archaeology replaces historical sources. What I might conclude at this stage is that they're complementary ways of approaching the past, and I might leave it at that, but that seems to me to be a somewhat facile conclusion, although I think it is true. It seems to me that both of them are informing us about particular aspects of the past, but the, evident, and the evidence ought to be, ought to be complementary uh, rather than uh, contradictory, although in fact in Libquarry there are problems because we found the depopulation taking place rather earlier than the, the documents uh, said. But it seems to me that the real value is this ongoing dialogue, an ongoing dialogue which between the two types of evidence. And for an archaeologist, the particular value of manorial documents seems that they address this broader context in which we can begin to understand the particularities of what we are excavating. Thank you. Our third speaker is uh, Philip Schofield, who's Professor of Medieval History and uh, Head of Department second time round of the Department of History and Welsh History at Aberystwyth University. Philip is one of the leading economic historians of the medieval period, who has again focused on ordinary people using the records of manorial courts. And his current research is a major project on the Great Famine, which uh, uh, has already been alluded to this morning, uh, of the early 14th century. So he's going to talk to us on manorial documents and famine in medieval England. Okay, what I'd like to do today, and reflect a little bit on the manorial documents register in relation to it, is take you through a bit of a whistle-stop tour of approaches to the topic of famine in the Middle Ages, something, as we've heard uh, a little bit about in Chris's talk earlier today, and, uh, and reflect on the ways in which we can approach it and the ways in which we can use manorial documents to begin to explore that as a topic. And also, I hope to reflect a little bit on the strengths and weaknesses of our sources in those respects, as well as returning briefly in conclusion, to talk a little bit about the uh, manorial, docu manorial Documents Register as well. This work comes really out of two separate peace projects, really. The main one uh, relates to the Great Famine project that, uh, uh, that Angus kindly alluded to, which is from the Lieberhume Trust, uh, but also uh, draws on an earlier project in some ways, which Richard Smith was the principal investigator, uh, and then Chris Briggs and uh, Cambridge and Matt Tompkins uh, at Leicester and I worked on on private law and village society and I mentioned that project not because it's going to dominate what I want to say today but because the the source base is very close and the period is very close so I've been drawing on some of the material we gathered for that uh, and I also wanted in a sense to give you a sense of the kind of material we were gathering these are all court roles that we were gathering or looking at for the um, for the litigation project both in the east of England a sample really from from East Anglia and then Western counties on the border with Wales um, in particular, uh, just to give a sense of the, of the scale of late 13th and early 14th century manorial documentation and the opportunities that there are to exploit and explore that, that kind of material. Uh, some of those uh, sources crop up today and some of them have, have fed into my uh, famine work, though uh, what, I've also, what also involved me is in looking elsewhere for similar kinds of material. Now, we don't need, in a sense, to go only to the court rolls or the associated manorial documents, such as the account rolls and the rentals and the surveys, to look for famine. Contemporaries 
were fully aware of famine and uh, in narrative accounts such as Chronicles uh, recorded it and reflected upon it. This is one of the more famous statements, not the most famous statement, which is probably um, Matthew Paris's account of the, uh, of the famine at the end of the 1250s. But um, this is from the Life of Edward II, edited by Wendy Childs, this edition, talking about the Great Famine of the uh, beginning 1315, uh, 1316. And in ways that I think are broadly formulaic and crop up often in the chronicle accounts. And I won't obviously be talking about the chronicle accounts very much because I want to talk about court rolls. But, um, but I think it's worth noticing from this narrative that there's a reflection on the scarcity, about the unusual quality of it, uh, something that had not been heard of for 100 years. And then a formula that talks about wheat prices, that talks about the great scarcity, pestilence associated with famine, and then death. So that kind of formula of grain prices leading to pestilence, leading to death, is, is a not unfamiliar one, and, and one that we certainly find from time to time in the narrative accounts. Sometimes chroniclers go further. They begin to talk about the, the social consequences of famine. So again, this is Trocolo different chronicler, but also writing about the Great Famine, uh, who talks about the restructuring of households and basically uh, removing people from the courts uh, so that these people who suddenly used to leading a delicate life, did not know how to dig, were ashamed to beg in their poverty, uh, that they turned to become murderers and, and robbers. These sort of reflections are are relatively rare. Uh, chroniclers don't tend to be interested in the wider social economic uh, aspects of their period. They're far more interested in the high politics and the um, and political elites. But, um, but from time to time, especially when an event seems to be of significant magnitude, uh, we, will, we will get a sense of them. Troclo goes further than any chronicler in, in sort of pushing the, uh, uh, the, uh, the consequences of famine. Uh, so he he proceeds to talk about the, the sort of what we might think of as the demographic consequences through lack of food, people turning to hunger foods, famine foods, including fat dogs. Uh, and as many have testified, both men and women in many places secretly ate their children and other people. Uh, further, what would be horrible for a few generations to learn, prisoners devoured half alive those thieves who had recently come amongst them. There's been some questioning of that kind of narrative account. Is it hyperbole? Is it biblical in its reference and a regurgitation of, of, of familiar stories simply to say this was bad, this was an awful event, rather than actually an event that was you know, dominated by cannibalism and so on. But So we have narrative accounts of that kind. And if we only had the chronicles we would be directed to events of this kind and we would be aware that famine took place, but we wouldn't be able to really chart that, to map it. It would, free, it would crop up, we would get some sense of years in which famine occurred, but famine occurs in other years, the Chronicles don't mention it. So 13, 15, 16, the Great Famine, a frequent appearer in the Chronicles. 13, 10, 11, something that looks very much like a famine, doesn't really crop up in the Chronicles at all. So, so that sort of infrequency. So we need to go back to our manorial sources, being proprietorial about them, uh, to actually get a, get a better sense of the, um, of, the, of, the, of the chronology, of the mapping. This is from Bruce Campbell's 2000 book on English seigneurial agriculture, and we'd find variants of this sort of data. But basically what it's showing us is a movement between prices and wages. So effectively you can see that the, uh, has the Great Famine and extraordinary peaks in grain prices, falls effectively 
effective in real wages, wages don't actually fall, but real wages do fall, that particular year, 13, 15, 16, uh, has been identified by Greg Clark as the worst year uh, in the last millennium to be a wage labourer, basically, that effectively the distance between what your wage could buy you and what actually prices were was so extreme uh, that people were left uh, extremely exposed in those sort of conditions. Over time, that changes. So over time, especially with the Black Death, prices begin to fall and wages uh, rise, a reflection, obviously, of population change. But what I'm particularly interested in is, is this period. And using, and I won't click on this hyperlink uh, for all sorts of reasons, not least time, but also because I'm never sure I'd actually get back from it again, if it were, um, uh, is, is that basically what we have through thousands and thousands and thousands of manorial accounts from this period is the capacity to map, to chart, to actually set out a, a chronology against which we can uh, test this kind of data. And historians have used this data. Someone called Christopher Dyer, uh, who's done some work on this sort of thing uh, from Standards of Living book, uh, and Chris's work here is, is, is setting out uh, sort of bad harvest years and, and identifying them using exactly that kind of data, and this is a, a, a recent publication by Richard Hoyle uh, in Ofani and Ograda's recent book on famines in European history, which is doing something similar. So we can get a sense of change over time and incidence, uh, which is entirely based on manorial documents, in this case, especially uh, the evidence of manorial accounts, which offer us information not only on price, but also on yield as well, so we can get a, a good range of information there that allows us to get to chronologies. So in, in its fluctuation, in its change, we can get a sense of, of famine events and crisis events simply by looking at the peaks and troughs and, and the sort of flows. And we can go a bit further uh, with that data as well uh, and be really quite quantitative should we choose to do so. So this is comparing different food types uh, different grain types, I beg your pardon, in terms of actually uh, price uh, and looking at the ways in which they, they correspond. And this is um, correlation coefficients for, for, for grain prices across a fairly long period from the 1270s through to the 1320s. And, and the sort of key point here is the one in red is, is the Great Famine decade at the bottom where you can see they're very close to one. So barley price and the rye price are very close to the same. Effectively, what we're seeing there is a close correlation of prices that effectively people who might have chosen to consume barley are beginning to trade down to rye and that's pushing up the price of rye. So both prices of grains are moving together, whereas in years where there was less of a crisis, less of a pressure on resources, people weren't trading down to other grains. So in a sense, what we're seeing here is a quantitative effect of, uh, of, of poor harvest being played out in the accounts from which, if we can gather enough data, we can extrapolate uh, and, and, and make quite involved um, analysis of that kind of material. But to turn to uh, the court rolls uh, themselves, what does this mapping, what does this chronology actually mean for people? How does it bring us closer to their lived experience when we're thinking about famine events. Uh, this is from a British Library, uh, but British Library uh, additional charter from Wart Wartley, Sussex, from uh, May 1316, so slap bang in the, in the middle of the Great Famine. 
interesting in and of itself, as we see with the, with the later Black Death as well, that even in what seem to be crisis events, people are maintaining and recording and, and persisting in, in, in accurate record keeping, which obviously is hugely advantageous to us now. Uh, but to go into the detail of that red line section, what it's beginning to show us here is the recording of deaths. So we've got three Heriots uh, here, three death duty payments from, from three different tenants, including, to use one example here, William uh, the Reed, uh, who held from the Lord a mess sewage and, can't see it now, so many acres of, six acres of land, and basically his death is being recorded, and we expect to find an incoming tenant coming in to take hold of, those, of, 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 that, of that land. We get Heriots, we get death duty, death duty payments, of course, in all courts from time to time. You know, but it, it's the frequency and it's the changing frequency uh, that, should, that should attract our attention. The end of the, uh, end of the 1950s, Muni Poston and Jan Titov wrote a seminal article on the relationship between these death duty payments and, and, and prices using the Winchester material. Um, and, and here's the sort of spike in, in great famine deaths. That was a pioneering attempt to actually look at death duty payments and see how they relate to the movement of, 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 of grain prices and also simply just to record the deaths. So going back to my uh, observation here, we've, we've got material on deaths, but it's the accumulation of that material, the gathering of it, and in good series of records, the ability to actually chart this over time that begins to allow us to actually look at death as one immediate response to things like famine and think about the ways in which that actually fluctuates and, and changes over time. So here's a uh, a series of, of gatherings of data, most from Richard's, uh, uh, Richard Smith's work on demographic developments, um, an article in, a, in an earlier edition by Bruce Campbell, uh, and then a little bit by my own uh, on Hinderclay at the end there, just to actually point out that, again, to use the Great Famine 1316 to 18 in particular here, 1315 to 16, that we're seeing an increase across the board uh, in deaths at moments like that. So if we're looking for one quick response to famine, to get at the sort of human sense of that, then dying is one obvious response to famine. The there are difficulties in that. One of them is extrapolation. You know, we've obviously got lots and lots of local case studies, so the work of historians such as myself and others should be to try to gather more. One problem associated with that is that some court role series such as these, and these are with the exception of Hales Owen in the West Midlands, all from uh, East Anglia, one, one into Cambridgeshire, is that we might be missing or we need to get a sense of regional differences. But there might also be tenurial differences. There might also be recording differences. I was looking recently through um, the Wakefield Court Rolls from Yorkshire, and they aren't throwing up the same kind of references. They aren't throwing up the same sort of materials. So, so we need to be aware of those sort of distinctions. And, of course, they're also telling us about tenant deaths. So they're telling us about people who are holding land, who are not landless. Uh, so we need to be more aware of, uh, of that and actually think about, well, okay, if tenants are dying in these numbers, what's happening to the people beneath them? What's happening to those who are actually far less fortunate? There are other ways in exploring change over time in, in these sort of ways. This is Larry Pousse's work, important article published uh, 30 years ago and more now, looking at tithing penny payments recorded in Essex courts, where you can actually look at, uh, at, at change. This is uh, sort of around the period of the famine, a falling away in 
males over the age of 12 uh, who are all paying a penny to be in tithing within some local courts. And where you've got that year on year, you can begin to make some quantitative analysis of that. Does that tell us that population is falling dramatically after the famine and before the Black Death strikes? Probably not. Probably what it's telling us is a combination of things. Some deaths, some people moving away, some, some, some males actually seeking opportunity elsewhere. So how far we could trust the exact movement there in terms of population or mortality relative to other important indices of demographic change uh, difficult to entirely get a handle on. Very quickly, again to return to the Chronicles, what's less easy for any demographers, historical demographers, to get at is morbidity, is disease, is actually the, uh, the, the ways in which people die rather than the fact they actually do die. Um, Chris mentioned earlier in relation to Preston on Wye in, in, in Herefordshire, the, uh, the Harriet case he had, and he, and he speculated quite reasonably that perhaps those people hadn't starved to death, but they'd actually died from infectious disease associated with famine in 1316. Certainly, chroniclers are very aware of famine-related disease that's killing people. So Trocolo here is talking about uh, the mortality that scarcely sufficient were left alive to bury the dead. That's a standard trope. For dysenteric disease caused by the corrupted food infected almost everyone. This was followed by an acute fever or plague of the intestine, pestis guterosa. So, so Troclo uh, is referencing their infectious disease. I think more work could be done there insofar as it's possible looking at the seasonality of deaths to actually explore the extent to which you know, we can actually spot deaths that aren't necessarily famine deaths right at the end in that hunger gap between the uh, end of the winter and the next harvest, but deaths that are following uh, a bit later in the year. And I've uh, tried to do some of that, but chiefly with bishop's registers rather than with court rolls, so I'm not going to explore that now. One other related, a couple of other uh, related social consequences which we can get from our court records uh, are the sort of thing, again, the chroniclers were talking about earlier in, in my early example, uh, social disruptions, so things like theft, for example, where, again, we see some... Uh, peaking of, of theft. This is from just over the Welsh border into Dover and Clwyd in, in, uh, in the marches, records that actually are, are held here, where there is a, a peaking in, in, in theft in, in 1316, but also interestingly in 1320 and again in 1322. So, so we might associate that with key famine events, we might that associate that with disruption uh, in other ways, though actually we wouldn't entirely rule out famine for those later, later years either. And we can spot it in other ways as well. So, uh, so effectively, to look at economic activity that references responses to famine. Here, this is uh, my work on Hinderclay, a manner that also cropped up in, uh, in, in, in Richard's uh, uh, presentation, where 1316, uh, we're seeing an interesting peak in land sales. That's a sort of commonly used indicator of, of crisis and crisis response. We're also seeing a peak in litigation, and we're also seeing a peak, the smaller one obviously, because I'm using the same scale, in deaths as well. So we've got all three effectively. We've got, um, we've got a, a mortality increase, but also a sort of social economic increase as well. The assumption being that things like debt litigation is a response to people trying to maybe to recover debts or to, or to, or to call in debts in, in a period of need. Land sales also reflecting that, uh, that crisis event and the need to, need to respond uh, to it. So I, I'll just very quickly go through these because I, I was really making the same point. But wh wherever we look, 
well, not wherever we look, we're often where we look, we can find uh, these, these sort of increases, these, uh, these peaks in activity. So these are debt pleas from, again, from Dover and Cluid on, on the other side of the, uh, of the Welsh border showing the same thing. And to add a little nuance to that, where we can go with that material is we can begin to explore it and we can begin to think about what it's telling us. One of the things that strikes me as interesting in the Hinderclay material is the large amount of debt, small numbers of debts, relatively, but large debts, so small numbers of large debts. So the amount of capital that's being sucked out of the system by one or two people coming and recovering large debts is cumulatively greater than the sort of the relatively everyday activity of the large number of small debts, debts than less than a shilling, whereas a uh, relatively small number of debt pleas for 10 shillings to 20 shillings range. But the amount of capital involved in that relatively speaking, is enormous. And I think what that means, and again, to, uh, to use that same example a bit further, is that we get a peak in litigation during the famine, and then, a, and then a f with a lot of capital being dragged out of the system, and then after the famine, a falling away in litigation, and I suspect in this example, and it needs further testing, what we're seeing is the drawing out of capital from a community of that kind, where again, rather like the mortality, we're seeing at a certain level, a slightly elevated level, but what consequences does that have uh, for the people uh, operating beneath them who may actually be desperate for that kind of work? Uh, just to give you an example of that, this is, um, this is one example from Great Barton in Suffolk, where actually we can see uh, one individual, uh, a guy called Stephen de Hawkton, who's turning up in 1316, uh, in, in the spring of 1316, right at the, um, one of the key points in, in the Great Famine, and recovering very large amounts of grain from three different individuals. An example of that kind of capital sucking, of drawing out capital from communities uh, at key points. Very quickly, this is a litigation project. What I also wanted to say is that kind of litigation uh, that, that Chris was uh, mentioning earlier as well, affords us enormous insight. It gives us a huge range of de detail and material that allows us to get sometimes at really detailed aspects of law. Uh, this is not from the famine, this is from uh, 1330, but just to give you an example of the kind of, of the law involved, of, of the sums involved, of the sort of tactics involved, of the ways in which people are familiar with and able to use law in these sort of events. This is another aspect that our, our court roles uh, give us some sort of insight into. Okay, to conclude then, this is um, a court from May 1316, again in the, in, in the worst of the Great Famine years, which sums up in many ways the kind of range of material uh, that we might make good use of uh, in trying to explore aspects of famine. So there are land transfers here, uh, there are immersements, there's litigation, uh, there's many of the things we would hope to find if we're trying to chart and get a decent sense of the ways in which famine might be recorded and allow us to explore and exploit that kind of material. The Memorial Doctrine Register entry for that doesn't give us that information, of course. It tells us that there's a court role for 13, 14, 16, but what it does is encourage us to go and, and look at it and to explore it. And after all, that's what the, uh, that's what the researchers should be doing. So, so in a sense, the, uh, the Memorial Doctrine Register through its essence, through what it is, inevitably hides the surprises uh, that we find when we actually arrive at this kind of material, but thank goodness for it in helping to guide us uh, to it in the first place. Thank you very much.
This podcast is copyright the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.